Well, tonight we have the privilege of turning back to Daniel's prophecy, and this will be our last look in this marvelous book. So much to cover tonight, and so we get to jump right into this marvelous study. It was asked uh, of me multiple times over the last few weeks. People have noticed events that have been going on in the world, and they have asked the question, are we in the end times? Are, is, it, is this happening right now? Is this it? This is the, you know, the end times, uh, all the things that we see going on around us, this must be it, right? And my response to almost all of them is about the same. We are in the birth pains in the sense, but this is not yet it. Um, there are particular things that must happen first. Certainly Jesus calls those events in, in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapters 24 and 25, those beginnings of the tribulation, birth pains. Right now, what we're experiencing, we would call the Braxton Hicks contractions. It's a little bit, it's, you're starting to get a taste of what is to come, but it is not yet there in which we will see the final tribulation period. Daniel's prophecy at this point in Daniel chapter 11, from 36 through chapter 12 and verse 13, comes the final focusing of those, that last seven-year period of time. That last bit of time which we know when this occurs, the Antichrist will have been revealed and as we'll see tonight, some of the characteristics for him. So if we were to ask the question, what would you look for to begin that tribulation period? That's been answered different ways by different theological systems. If you were uh, coming from a traditional kind of a dispensational background, you might be tempted to think, well, it begins with the, with the church being raptured out. The church is taken out of the equation, and they raptured and in the presence of Christ, and then you begin the period. But that's not what Daniel emphasizes here. It's not what God emphasizes. In fact, what God emphasizes is the beginning of that tribulation period of time is the revelation of the Antichrist, the final world leader. So however long that's going to be, whether one happens and immediately he's revealed, I do not know. The Lord knows the timing on that. But when we look at to the beginning of that final tribulation period, it begins by the revelation of this one, this final ruler. Now, mind you, throughout Daniel's prophecy, on three different occasions, God has given revelation to Daniel, speaking about kingdoms, speaking about rulers, and speaking about particularly this individual, this final ruler. Daniel chapter 7, from verse 7 and following, Daniel chapter 9, and now here, Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 and following, speaks of this final ruler. This final ruler that comes on top of or in line with the previous rulers. In fact, all the previous kings, and we saw this last week when we looked at, looked at verses 1 through 35. The previous kings that came before only foreshadow this final ruler who is to come. He's going to be a ruler who will rule the whole world. He will seek uh, to dominate the whole entire world, to exercise a kind of authority over everyone. He will come in anger. He will come to dominate. He will come in such a way as to demonstrate uh, not only the acquiring of vast wealth, but using that wealth for the Com, you know, for the conquering of the whole world. And there, uh, there's more, and we'll see that tonight. But the key for us is to recognize there is going to be this one who is influenced with satanic power that seeks to take over the world, and this one is one at his revelation, at the uh, unfolding of who he is, that begins this final period of time. Some have argued that here in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 36, that this is the, the uh, Antiochus, Epiphanes. This is the, the ruler that you know, operated before Christ came. But that isn't the case because what we'll see here is this one is going to operate until the end of time, as chapter 12 and verse 1 describes. This is one who is going to operate until the end of time. This is one who is, again, going to operate through the tribulation period. 
And so what we're going to see here is this unfolding of this final king. We see the previous kings from uh, Antiochus to Alexander the Great and others. And now we come to this final king from verse 36 and following. So let's just start unfolding this for us. Starting in verse 36, it says this. Then the king will do as he pleases. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. Now, as we begin to look at this final Antichrist, there are characteristics of this individual that's going to set him apart from everyone else who has ever come. He is going to, as the text says, exalt and magnify himself above every god. He is going to lift himself up even in the religious realm. Some said this might mean that he is going to be an atheist, that he is going to deny gods altogether. That might be the case. But most importantly, what he is going to be is self-willed. He's going to be exalting himself. He's going to be seeking his own prominence. He's going to do as he pleases. And when he exalts himself and magnifies himself and does as he pleases, he is drawing all attention to his will. He's going to be the kind of dictator that's going to have no other rivals. This goes back to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar operated with a kind of authority that he had no checks and balances. He operated entirely in his own authority. That's why he was the the head of gold in the statue. He had no restraints. Every other authority, every other ruler that came after him had various restraints from armies, senates, etc. This one ruled, Nebuchadnezzar ruled with absolute authority, and that is this Antichrist. He will do as he pleases. He will lead the nations into wars. He will fight against the others. He will seek to dominate and rule. And, as again, as the text indicates, he's going to exalt and magnify himself above every god. It's not just enough that he does his will and gets his will, but he also wants all praise and adoration. He wants all the worship coming to him, And it doesn't just stop at directing uh, his glory and everyone acknowledging his glory. He goes on and says, and he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. He's going to speak blasphemies against the, the living God. He's going to speak against the God of the Jews, exalting himself highly. Again, this is consistent with what their scriptures teach. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 4, speaks of the man of lawlessness being boastful. There is, a, again, this exaltation of oneself. He is going to speak, again, just blasphemous things. This will come in where he is drawing all attention to himself. As the text goes on, not only will he speak these monstrous things, and again, We couldn't even begin to imagine, but what it will ultimately be this, it will shock our spiritual senses. If you were in the middle of it, if if indeed the church was around, if God's people were around at all and heard this, we would be utterly stunned, shocked by the monstrous things that he spoke against the God of gods. And on top of that, it says, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. He is going to rule according to God, what God has decreed. There is a plan. He will have his place. He will operate in this place, but he is only going to operate as, until everything is completed, until the indignation is completed. This is until he has fulfilled exactly what God has designed for him to fulfill and that's what Daniel is in, indicates here at the end. For that which is decreed will be done. It's going to happen according to God's decree. This is going to be according to God's plan. God will allow for a period of time this kind of hostility, this kind of rebellion, this kind of rejection of God and his ways. This, he's going to allow this kind of wicked ruler to come and operate. By the way, that Jesus says that during this time, this will be a time in which signs and wonders and miracles are taking place that if possible, even to deceive the elect, it will be a time in which, again, God decreed to test the hearts of the people so as to reveal them. And we'll see that here as we work our way through this, what is, being, what is happening. Now notice verse 37. 
says, He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Now, in this, there's a series of other clarifying statements of his character. First, he will show no regard for the gods of his father. There's been questioned about what, who the Antichrist is. Some have argued that he might have been a Jew, and as a Jew, then he would be abandoning uh, the, the God. But again, this is here in the plural, the gods of, their, of his fathers. In the likelihood, because he is part of the Roman Empire, the former Roman Empire, and this is a revival of the former Roman Empire, this is the next generation of the Roman Empire, this is somebody who came from the foreign Gentile gods, that's what's in reference here. And that he is abandoning the Roman gods now, and he has left the gods of his father. So he's not going to practice the the kind of worship that his fathers did, the Romans did, he is now going to worship something else entirely. Then he adds this phrase, or for the desire of women. This can be many different things here. It could mean there that he's practicing homosexuality. Or it could mean that he has desires that would be characteristic, or he doesn't demonstrate the kind of um, characteristics that women desire. He's not gentle. He's not merciful. He's not kind. Or the third possibility is that he is, the de- he is against the desire of women, that is reference to Jewish women who desired to have the Messiah in their line. This is what different commentators have said. One commentator said that the Jewish women during this time desired that the Messiah would come through their line. And so here he did not have a desire for the Messiah. Those are three possibilities. I like the first one. Seems to make sense to me. But anyways, it could be any one of those three possibilities. Here he is against the, uh, has no desire for women and on top of that, he says, that nor will he show regard for any other god. Basically, he is going to see every god as a rival. He is placing himself on the throne of deity. He is exalting himself to such a point that he will share that glory with no one else. And then lastly, this exalted one is going to magnify himself above them all. So even if there was another God out there, he is exalting himself above. This is, again, the description of one who is an egomaniac, one who is lifting himself up, one who is self-absorbed, one who is desperate for control, one who wants all attention upon himself, and one who is destroying any other religion altogether. All focus must be on him. This is the one we're looking for. And you're not going to miss this kind of individual. When he comes into this world, when he rises up to power, you're not going to miss this individual. It will be obvious. Verse 38. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses. This is that he is going to put his attention into power, into fortresses. He's going to honor, he will seek to be powerful. He is going to take all of his resources that he receives and he's going to direct this into demonstrations of power. It says, a God whom his fathers did not know, he will, he will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones and treasures. He is going to put all of his resources into building up these strong fortresses. This will be his God, military capacity. This will be his God. No amount of money will be enough for him to build up a strongholds so which he can take a stand against any other authorities. It will be like a God his fathers did not know. The idea is this is something different than what the Romans had understood or knew. This is, again, the greatest uh, military strength. Verse 39, and he will take action against the strongest of fortresses 
And with the help of a foreign god, he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. So from, these, from this verse, from verse 36 through 39, is the description of the Antichrist. And he comes, this last description in verse 39, is that he, whatever he gains when he goes out and he conquers lands and gains those lands, he's going to use that land as leverage to pay off people to get on his side so that he can have more authority. He's going to parcel out that land and use that land as a price to buy favor, to buy loyalty. He is going to be able to build his kingdom by either, as they say, you either take the bullet or take the prize. You know, you, we will come and destroy you, or you can come and take the gift I'm going to offer you, and you are loyal to me. What is it? In this case, he uses, again, the kind of classic technique of many of the narco rulers. If you want to live, take my gift, be on my side, and you shall receive a place of honor, and you must be loyal to me entirely. If you turn against me in any way, you will be destroyed. This is the character of the Antichrist from verse 36 to 39. A strong, dominant world leader who's contented with no authority rivaling him, exalting himself above every other authority, demanding total allegiance, total worship to himself, desiring all resources that he'd use those resources to building up these strongholds so that he would have power and be able to rule over all. You would think that kind of power would mean then automatically we would bring world peace. Nope. Verses 40 and following describes then the conflicts. So yes, he rises up to power. Yes, he takes these positions. Yes, he takes the worship. Yes, he begins to make these great boasts. Yes, he's proud and arrogant and, and proclaiming his boastful words. Again, that's in line with... Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9 as well. The Antichrist filled with these mighty boasts. The little horn filled with boasts. But now we come to the conflicts. Starting in verse 40. It says, And at the end of time, or at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. Again, this goes back to the... Uh, verse, first 35 verses, when we're talking about the king of the north and the king of the south, we talk about the one in the northern region and the southern region, and right in the middle is Israel. And so the king of the south, this would be the northern, uh, or the southern region, this would be down again in uh, Egypt. So the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he will enter countries and overflow them and pass through. So he's going to be in a position where those rival authorities are going to come from the north and from the south, and they're going to come and attack him, and he is then going to overwhelm. He's going to overflow them. In this end time, he's going to come in and he's going to begin to sweep that whole region and take over. Taking over the lands of the north and the south, he's going to fight in these bitter fights so that, as it says there in the text, he, he will, actually it comes in the next verse, 41, he will also enter the beautiful land. He is going to come in, he's going to fight, he's going to come in and take over even Jerusalem and Israel, and he's going to get in the middle of conflict between these two kings and overflow. That is, he's going to conquer them. He's going to get in these battles. But he's not going to battle with everyone in the whole world. In fact, there are certain areas that are already either on his side or not worth his seeking. The end of verse 41 says, He will enter the beautiful land and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom and Moab and foremost of the sons of Ammon. There are those to the, to the east or to the, yeah, to the west or east of them that he's not going to go after. He is going to go after those in the north and the south. He's going to rule. He's going to seek to dominate. And then he's going to be setting up his place of operation right there in the middle of Jerusalem. 
right there in the middle of Israel, in that area. He's going to be setting up his place as he fights off these two kings and as he demonstrates his world domination. And now here comes the Antichrist right in the middle of God's people, right in the middle of the beautiful land, and it's all for a purpose, as we will see in a moment. It's all for a purpose, a purpose of purification. Verse 42, Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. He's going to head down to the south, and he's going to conquer Egypt. He's going to take over that land. It says in verse 43, He will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. He's going to conquer everything down to the south taking over, ruling over that, taking all their precious materials. Again, if we're setting up the context here, here he is taking everything of wealth to himself so that he can use that the building of his fortresses, the building of his military strength. All of this is about him gathering those natural resources, gold, silver, but oil and anything of value, taking that and using it to funding his war machine. On top of that, is on verse 44, but rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He's going to live in this constant state of terror. Any threat he needs to crush, he needs to throw out. From the east, from the north, if there's any personal threat to him at all, he must go and with fury conquer and annihilate. So it says there, he'll annihilate and destroy many. He's going to be a man of war. This political ruler leading to conquer and to destroy is going to be moving out upon the earth to own, to dominate the whole world, to have absolute control. Again, this is historically, many have looked, and remember if you went back into the, um, just a few hundred years ago during the Reformation, it was very popular during the Reformation for the Reformers to walk around and say the Pope is the Antichrist. Certainly during those times, maybe even earlier that, with the Crusades, the Popes might have encouraged some of those things, but in this case, who, this individual is going to rule is going to be a political ruler, so if in the future you had a religious person moving up into a kind of role that they would operate as a political ruler, then indeed it could be that case. But it's not likely that a, from a church office that one is going to move to do this. This is one who is looking to set up his own nation. Verse 45 then describes it. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. He's going to operate right in the Holy Land. He's going to set up his residence right in the middle of the Holy Land. And oh, by the way, this is perfect because this sets up the stage for Christ to come and war with him. He's going to set up his, his headquarters in the Holy Land between the seas, between the Dead Sea and the Red Sea. He's going to set up that, his headquarters there and he's going to operate Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. The description of this is that he, yes, he is going to have his time. This period of time will operate. He's going to bring great destruction upon Israel and everyone around. But he is going to, and he's going to operate right in the middle of Israel's land, dragging them into the fight and causing difficulties for them. And he's going to do this until his end comes. And when it, and his end comes, verse 45 says, no one will be there to help him. All the amassed strength, all the amassed weaponry, all the amassed fortresses, all the amassed wealth, everything that he has gained will not be able to stop him from being delivered. He will not be able to deliver him in that time. The end of the prophecy comes in the next four verses of chapter 12, to which the, the angel revealing to Daniel says this, Now at that time Michael, 
the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who asleep in the dust of the ground will awake, and these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. We'll just stop right there for a second. At this end time, as the Antichrist is coming to the end of his period of time operating, in comes again Michael, the great archangel. Michael comes in and he's involved in these last moments here. And in these last moments is describing, again, this work, this angelic work. And you remember that what we talked about in chapter 10 of Daniel is the description of the heavenly war that was taking place. Chapter 11 was the earthly events. And now we come back to then a heavenly picture again. Michael's involved. Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. Now this may mean, in regards to, one would ask, what is this involving? This is probably the supernatural protection of the remnant of Israel during that tribulation period. Remember in the tribulation, in that final seven-year period of time, the whole purpose of that time is to turn God's people back to Him. That Israel would turn back, that they would see their God, that they would worship their God, and you'll, you recognize or remember in the book of Revelation, that number is given to us of 144,000. 144,000 Jews from the tribes of Israel turn to God and they, they remember their Messiah whom they have rejected. So at this case, in, in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, what is believed is happening here is Michael is coming and guarding those 144,000. He's guarding them from the attacks of the Antichrist. Guarding them during this tribulation period of time. This time that, as Jesus calls, the time of the beginning of the birth pains and then the severe birth pains. The, the severe tribulation. What occurs during that time? Just kind of give you the general reminder of the historical events. What takes place during that time? All of this is described in the book of Revelation. What you have is a series of events that start to take place. And this is, again, described in the Olivet Discourse. If you looked at Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 24, verse 25, Jesus tells his disciples what's going to take place in the end times. He describes it as, again, the beginning of birth pains, Matthew 24, verse 8. And he says these events are going to take place. First, a revival of a conquering political leader, the Antichrist. The character that we have just described here from Daniel eleven thirty six through 45. That's the first thing. Second thing that will take place is open war and revolution. Just as he has described here as a man of war, he begins to war with everyone around. Third, worldwide famine starts to take place. Fourth, war, famine, disease, and wild beasts. Fifth, Martyrs are killed. And then six, there's a disturbance in heaven and on earth. All of these are the beginning signs of that end time destruction that Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse. And how long is all that going to last? Well, it's going to last for, as the angel says, or the man in Lydon says later in this text, for a time, times, and half a time. It's going to last for a seven-year period of time. It's going to last for seven years, this final period of tribulation. In this, what's described in, again, verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1, what's described here is Michael's activity guarding. He stands there to guard the sons of your people. There he is going to guard Israel particularly. These, this remnant. And it says again, at middle of verse 12, and there will be a time of distress, notice, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. This is going to be a time of incredible destruction. Incredible destruction. 
destruction. I mean, if you remember the judgments that come, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bull judgments. Revelation describes this. Daniel didn't have that prophecy. Daniel didn't have the prophecy of John's revelation. But we, having the New Testament and having John's revelation, we know this time of distress. When, when God says to Daniel here, this time, there will be a time of distress such as never occurred, Daniel couldn't even begin to imagine what that would be. We're told what it is. Think about this. The first set of judgments that come. What are the first judgments? It's the trumpet judgments that come. The midpoint. Those were the first ones I read to you were the seal judgments, the revival of the political leader, the Antichrist, the opening of, uh, of war and revolution, worldwide famine, etc., um, war and diseases and beasts, martyrs and disturbance. All of those were the seal judgments. And the last seal that is broken opens up then the trumpet judgments. And what are those trumpet judgments? Well, the first one will be this. One-third of the earth's vegetation is burned up. And the first trumpet judgment comes out. The second trumpet judgment that comes, one-third of the seas and all contained therein is destroyed. The third trumpet judgment, one-third of earth's water is contaminated. The fourth One-third of the sun, the moon, and the stars are darkened. And the fifth, five months of torment by locusts with the bites of scorpions. And then the sixth, an army of 200 million destroys one-third of mankind. Six, I mean, those six trumpet judgments coming brings utter destruction. You think, that's enough. I mean, you got a third of the vegetation destroyed, a third of the water supply gone, the, the seas are contaminated, the sun and the moon starts to darken, stars start to darken, and then you're attacked by these locust kind of insects. But that only opens to the seventh trumpet, which opens the bull judgments. Seven bull judgments come. What are those? These are described in Revelation chapter 16. By the way, the trumpet judgments are described in Revelations chapter 8 through 11. Chapter 16 of Revelation, the bold judgments come. What are those? Well, the first one are sores. Anyone who got the mark of the beast are filled with sores. Second one, the seas turn to blood. The third one, fresh water is turned to blood. Fourth bold judgment, scorching heat of the sun torments mankind. The fifth bull judgment poured out darkness across the earth. The sixth, the Euphrates River dries up, prepares for Armageddon. And then the seventh, physical catastrophes. Likely in the form of earthquakes and other natural events, asteroids, etc., physical catastrophes on earth. The earth, the whole world is in absolute turmoil. So when Daniel chapter 12 says, and there will be a time of distress such as a nation until that time has never occurred, that is a complete understatement in light of the book of Revelation. Can you think about a worldwide devastation? Where would you go to escape? What kind of water filter are you going to need here to just have water? Where would you go from the scorching heat? Where are you going to head up when you head into utter darkness? Where is one going to go to avoid the, the judgment of God during this time? And notice again, all of this is for God's people. He's doing this as he's saying again, Michael is guarding, Michael the great prince is guarding over the sons of your people. He's guarding them and protecting them. This is for the for the nation of Israel. This is for their turning to back to God. This is for their restoration. But this judgment is coming and it's going to be severe. And then at the end of verse 1, and at that time your people, notice, 
Everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Daniel, your people are going to head into great difficulty. They're going to head into impossible suffering, kind of suffering that we've never seen before. But everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. There is the hope in the midst of this difficult circumstance. There is the hope that they would come out through this and be rescued. And then in verse 2 through 4, he gives more details about the, that final moment, the return of Christ. Verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. He describes then the revelation, or the, the resurrection. The resurrection at Christ's return of those who are going to enter into eternal life. And he separates those from the second group. These are those who were resurrected to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Separates the two groups, those who will be resurrected unto life versus those who are resurrected unto judgment, just like Revelation chapter 20 describes. First resurrection is before the resurrection of the righteous, the resurrection of God's people who will head into the presence of God. The second resurrection, the resurrection of judgment, is for those who are going to then sit under judgment and be cast into the lake of fire. Verse 3, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. It says, here's what the book is for. The book is for those, again, who are righteous. And... and the book is for those in the end time who are going to live this out. It says to you, it says to Daniel, conceal these words, seal up the book. He's basically write up this book, Daniel. This isn't ultimately for you. It's for those to come. And those who live through this period of time, I love that phrase at the end of verse 4, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. There will be a time when those who are living through this are going to wrestle through this book and they're going to increase in knowledge and understanding with these details. These things for Daniel would be well beyond uh, his time. In fact, certainly well beyond our time yet. We're, we're not uh, yet living through this. Though we can look back in history and start to see a whole lot more than what Daniel would have perceived at that moment. Remember, this prophecy began back in chapter 10. And as Daniel received the kind of vision and the understanding from the angelic forces, chapter 11 describes it, and it describes it in the series of kings, which for Daniel is all still future. Those first four kings, we can look back in history and see those four kings and all of their roles. Now we're waiting for this final king to be revealed. This one who's going to come and rule and bring great destruction and great disarmony. And Daniel is told here, now seal this up. Now in the final verses, 5 through 13, the most natural thing happens. Daniel's like, help me understand. What does all this mean? Verse 5, then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were, were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on the bank of the river. So remember the scene. Daniel is, after three weeks of fasting, was standing at the river Tigris, and as he was standing on the river Tigris, he saw this man Above the river, this man in linen is there above the river. And he is wondering what has taken place, and an angel comes and talks to him. The angel gives him the vision. That's what has taken place. All of chapter 11 is the description from this angel about what took place. Now, Daniel's back into his scene. 
And now it's no longer Daniel and the man in linen. Now there are two more individuals, one standing on each side of the river. Each side of the river, they are standing there. And then, verse 6, And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? So now Daniel is looking in at these two angelic forces, seeing them, and one of the angels calls out to the man in linen and asks them details. How long will it be? I think this is indication that this man in linen is the Lord Jesus Christ pre-incarnate because he has knowledge. Again, just remember who this one is back in chapter 10, verse 5 and 6. When Daniel looked in the heavens, he said, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz, and his body was the barrel was like beryl and his face had the appearance of lightning and his eyes were like flaming torches and his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult spoke powerfully had the face shining this one then the angels turn to and they ask him a question about when is what is going to take place here in chapter 12 they and Daniel's listening in on this conversation, deeply curious as we would be as well. Yes, indeed. How long will it be until the end of these wonders? Verse 7. I heard, and it's back in 12, verse 7. I heard the man dressed in linen. And again, dressed in linen. This is the robes, the garments of the priest. This would have been the righteous one who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finished shattering, or as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Then this statement tells us the whole purpose of the tribulation. It is to absolutely bring Israel to the end of themselves. So they are absolutely, as it says, shattered. They have no power left. They are absolutely laid bare. They, have no, they can turn not to any of their own resources any longer. Until the holy people are brought low that they turn back to their God and in desperation call call upon him. And how long will it take? A time, times, and half a time. It will take seven years. It will take, what, 3,640 or... I can't do math up here. We'll do it later. 1,260 days for the first half. 1,260 days for the second half. What is that? 2,420 years. Anyways, it will take seven and a half years. Or seven years. I'm making up numbers now. It's going to take seven years. It's interesting. It continues on. Verse 8. As for me, I heard but could not understand. Daniel said, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? What all, what's all this going to be for? I don't understand. You told us how long it's going to be. But what's the outcome of it? And I love the answer, verse 9. He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. It's not for you to know. First of all, I love this answer of our Lord because of this statement here. Because we ask the question doesn't demand a right to the answer. We ask many questions in theology. We want the right to, and God doesn't answer those questions. Oftentimes, that's what frustrates us. And while we run to various passages, we want the answers, and we try to make passages fit. Here is the case that it was not for you. That's sealed up until the end of time. But he does give a little insight, a little nuance, a wrinkle here in the final verses. Verse 10, many will be purged 
purified and refined. But the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. So what's going to happen during this time? There's going to be a time of purging, a time of refining, a time of purifying, where the wicked are going to be even more wicked, more hostile, and the righteous are going to be separated. They are going to move to understanding. And I love the contrast there. The wicked head to further destruction. The righteous head to clarity and understanding. Verse 11, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished. Now this is the midway period of the tribulation. The middle point of the seven year period of time. At the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now you stop there and you say, wait a second, rewind the clock. Actually, it should be 1,260 days. You just added 30 more days here. What is that 30 more days? I believe that 30 more days is 30 days for judging the living who made it through the tribulation. That's the 30 days in which those who survived the tribulation, who didn't die when Christ returns and He sets up His kingdom or goes to set up His kingdom, the first 30 days are 30 days of judging the living, separating the sheep from the goats, separating the wicked from the righteous. For the wicked will enter into the rest, or the wicked will be head to destruction, and the righteous will head into rest. 30 days. But then he goes on, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to 1,335 days. Another 45 more days, what's that period of time? Why the 45 extra days? Well, that is believed to be the time in which Christ sets up his earthly kingdom, his reign with his people. So you have the 30 days of judgment. And then 45 days for Christ to set up his earthly kingdom and rule and reign. The 30 days, the first 30 days, gives the right, who has the right to enter into the millennial kingdom and who must stay out, who's led to judgment. And then the last 45 days, the establishing of Christ's reign. And then these words for Daniel in verse 13. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest Rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. I love the encouragement to Daniel at the end. Don't worry, Daniel. You'll live out your time. And you will be raised up on the last day. And you will receive your allotted portion at the end of the age. All of this, again, is to remind Daniel that God has a plan for the people of Israel. He's going to purify them. But he is going to purify them through intense suffering and difficulty. And he's going to lead them through that intense suffering and difficulty. And he has already decreed the beginning and the end of that. It's going to be limited, but it will be severe. It will be severe and it will be like nothing ever seen in all of history. But it will end at an appropriate time, and when it ends, the people of God will turn back to God. They will be purified. They will be separated from the wicked. They will be demonstrated that they have turned back to their God, and Christ will establish His rule. That will only come once this final ruler has been revealed. So that is what we are waiting for, God's eschatological timeline. Ultimately, Certainly the church is anticipating being removed from this. Church is anticipating being taken out and God focusing again on his restoration with Israel. But historically, if we're just looking at the next historical events, what one would be anticipating would be this revelation of this one for this final week in which God will bring purify his people. I guess next time when we have a chance I'm not promising the next study here. At some point in the near future, we will head towards the book of Revelation and see then John's addition to this marvelous prophecy. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. 
Father, thank you so much for these truths. I'm just thankful for your sovereign plan. For indeed, as we've said in the study of Daniel, that when you give prophecy and you declare it, and then it comes about, it demonstrates once again that you are God, very God, declaring the end from the beginning, and that no one can thwart your purposes. And even as you describe this final ruler that will come, as terrifying and as destructive as he will be, he will still be limited by you and still be limited in time and influence as you design so that your people will not lose hope and find rest and comfort in you. And even when he's given total world domination and even when your judgments are pouring out upon the whole earth and even when there's destruction all around and all of the world infrastructure is turned on its head and the world authorities are destroyed, you are still preserving and protecting your people. So we pray, Father, that we would not lose hope, we wouldn't grow fearful in this day and age, when we're seeing evil men rise to authority and they oppose you and they write laws that violate your commands, may we not lose hope. May we not be despairing. May we not give in to the fears that could come and fill our heart, but may we turn all the more to your scriptures to understand your purposes and your ways so that we would not be tossed here and there that we not, would not be threatened in our own hearts and fearful and believe that we must do something then ultimately then fighting against your plan. But may we trust in your good purposes and your loving protection and your marvelous wisdom. May we be the ones who gain wisdom and understanding as we glean your scriptures, even if this is not for our period and for us particularly. We still desire to know you to know your purposes and your ways, to rejoice in the grand demonstration of your power, that we would speak truth to one another and comfort one another, just as Paul comforted the Thessalonians when they grew fearful, wondering if they had missed the resurrection. So too, we want to be mindful that we wouldn't be deceived. For many deceivers will come seeking to mislead us and to draw our attention somewhere and say that the Christ has come and seek to cause us to go astray. But we anchor ourselves in your timeless truth. We anchor ourselves in your word. And we know that you have fulfilled your word faithfully and you will continue to do it. So that we will not be tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. We will not be chasing our tails wondering where Christ is at. We know when he comes, we will all see him. We know that when he establishes his rule, he will come with his people. When he establishes his rule, there will be no confusion. Until such time, Father, we rest in your truth. We rest in the faithful examples of the man of God. We follow in the footsteps of Daniel. And we trust in the revelation that you've revealed to him. And we're comforted by your truth. For indeed, the message of what is to come is a comfort to us. For we don't, will not be distressed. So minister to your church through these words we ask. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.